as a congregation just now, let's pray for John and Justine and for Rebecca and for their family. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank you so much for the gift of life and for the amazing miracle of birth, the wonder of a newborn child, so lovingly created, bringing so much joy to others. And Lord, this morning we want to thank you for the life of Rebecca, for all that is stretched out before her, the possibilities, joys, and discoveries that are held in store for her, we're excited to see. Lord, this morning we want to pray for her in whatever the future may hold for her. May your hand be there to lead her and may your love be there to bless. We ask, Lord, that you would give Rebecca help in times of learning so that she may grow in wisdom and in understanding, in knowledge and skill and ability and in experience and in character. We pray, Lord, that you would equip her to make the most of life's possibilities. May your hand be there to lead and your love be there to bless. Father, we pray too that you would grant her strength in times of testing, the ability to overcome difficulties, to withstand trials, to stray true to her convictions and to emerge stronger from adversity. Lord, we pray especially that you would give Rebecca real guidance in times of uncertainty through your word and by your spirit. Help her always to know the right way ahead because you're leading her and guiding her. Father, give her peace whenever she faces times of turmoil. Give her the knowledge that whatever happens, you're there and that nothing will ever be able to separate her from your love. Gracious God, we ask that you will put your hand upon Rebecca from this day forward, that you will watch over her and direct her footsteps, that you will make your great love for her known so that she may respond freely to you in her own time and in her own way. And Father, for John and for Justine, help and guide them as they help and guide Rebecca. Give them strength when things are hard, Give them hope when times are dark. Give them peace when things are unsure. Give them patience when things are frustrating. And give them trust when things go wrong. Father, bless the McCracken family, we pray. May each of them know your help and your love and your joy and your peace today and in the days ahead. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're joining us this morning, we are working our way through a book of the Bible called the book of Daniel. It's found in the Old Testament. And this morning we're coming to Daniel chapter 3. And if you grew up going to Sunday school, you may even be familiar with what happens in Daniel chapter 3. So let's read it together. The words will be on the screen. And then we're going to look at this passage and see what God wants to say to us this morning through it. Let's read Daniel chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold. 90 feet high and 9 feet wide, and set it up on the plain of Jura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So, the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before it. 
Then the herald loudly proclaimed, This is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You have issued a decree, O king, that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, pipes, harp, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship, the image I have made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And his attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement. And he asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? 
They replied, certainly, O king. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And the satraps, prefects, governors, and the royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair on their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble. For no other god can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Let's pray as we come to take a look at this part of the Bible together. Almighty God, we thank you so much that you have given us this part of the Bible, which tells us this incredible true story about three men who refused to bow but stood for you. Father, we would ask this morning that as we now come to look at this passage together, that you would speak to each of us today. Give us ears to hear your voice. Give us hearts to accept your word. Give us lives that will be obedient to what you say. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder how many of you this morning knew this story before you came into church. My guess is that if you grew up going to Sunday school, if you grew up in any sort of children's ministry, then this was one of the stories that you heard at least once, but probably multiple times. And the reason for that is that it's just an incredible story, isn't it? Here are three men who stand up to a king. Here are three men who who stand up for God in a world that doesn't want them to. And they're thrown into this fiery furnace and amazingly, they come out unscathed. It's a favorite story in any children's ministry. But the problem is that whenever we're very familiar with a passage like this, especially if we've looked at it as children, what we don't often do is look carefully at it as adults. You see, this part of the Bible, it wasn't only written for children. It was written for you, And it was written for me. And it was written to say something to us today. And so this morning what we're going to do is we're going to look at the passage together. We're going to look at the details which we maybe would skim over in a children's ministry setting. That's the first thing we're going to do. And the second thing we're going to do is we're going to try to work out what this passage has got to do with us today. So that's what we're doing. We're going to look at the passage. We're going to look at it carefully. And then we're going to figure out what on earth it's got to do with us today. The first thing that we see in this passage is that a big golden idol 
is set up in the province of Babylon. Okay, here's a quiz question for you. Anyone who gets it might get a packet of sweets or something, even though I don't have any. Here it is. Here is the question. What country was founded on the 9th of September, 1948? Anyone got it? Maybe you're just too, too shy to say. Okay, the country that was founded on the 9th of September, 1948, was North Korea. And every year on the 9th of September, the North Koreans celebrate something called National Day. It's a bit like the 4th of July in America. On the 9th of September, the people celebrate their National Day. And one of the things that everybody in North Korea is required to do on that day is buy before statues of the leaders. I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of North Korea, but in every town and in every village, there are statues of the Kim family. They're huge. They're 90 meters tall. They're made of gold. Sorry, they're not 90 meters. They're about 20 meters tall. They're made of, of bronze. And they're very impressive idols. And every year on National Day, the people must go before these idols and bow. They must bow before them. They must give their allegiance to these idols, to these gods. It's what's required. And you see in North Korea, if you choose not to buy, there are two things that will happen to you. The first is you might be executed there and then, taken away and dealt with. That is one thing that could happen to you. The second thing that might happen to you is that you and your family are taken away to a concentration camp and you don't taste any sort of freedom again. In North Korea, on National Day, you must bow before the idol, or your fate will not be good. And this is exactly what happens at the beginning of Daniel chapter 3. I don't know if you remember last week, but last week we met the king of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar. And God spoke to him in a dream, and God was very clear. God said to Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, your kingdom is going to come to an end. Nebuchadnezzar, the Medo-Persians are coming, and they're going to take the kingdom of Babylon away. Your kingdom is not going to last. Nebuchadnezzar, he, he doesn't like this idea. He wants to cling to power. And so he comes up with this wonderful idea. He makes this big, huge, golden image. He introduces a new god to Babylon, if you like. And what Nebuchadnezzar does is he gets everybody in the whole land to give their allegiance to this god. He sets the of Jura, and he calls all of the people, and he says, bow down to this god. Give this new god your allegiance. Now, now this was actually very clever. You see, this was a God that Nebuchadnezzar was introducing. So what that meant was that Nebuchadnezzar could be this God's spokesperson. Nebuchadnezzar could tell the people what this God was saying. This was a way of controlling his kingdom. This was a way of uniting them so that if the Medo-Persians came, they could be united in fighting against them. So he calls the people after setting up the image. And the instructions he gives are very, very clear. Have a look at them. They're on the screen there. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, this is what you're commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. Here's what you have to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold 
that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. All of you must bow down. Every single one of you must give your allegiance to this God that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And listen, there's no opt out of this. You've got to do it because you see, if you don't look what it says at the end, whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown in to a blazing furnace. It's buy or burn. No grace here. There's no option here. Everyone must buy down. And so as you'd expect, just like on National Day on the 9th of September in North Korea, everyone comes before the statue, before the new God, and everyone buys when they hear the music. And everyone goes home. Well, almost everyone goes home. But there are some men, some astrologers, and these astrologers, they go to the king. If these astrologers lived in East Belfast, they'd be called touts. They were touts. They go to the king and they go before him and they, they kind of lick up to him. Oh, King Nebuchadnezzar, live forever, oh, wonderful king. We are your loyal servants and we have something to tell you. And what do the touts tell Nebuchadnezzar? They tell him that in the crowd of thousands, there were three who didn't bow down. In the crowd of thousands of people who, who gathered that day on the plain of Jura and who gave their allegiance to this new God, the type tell Nebuchadnezzar that there were three men who did not bow down. They squeal on these three men. And do you notice what they describe these men as? They say that they're Jews. These are people who, who only believe in one God. Th those three men who only believe in one God, those three men who have given their allegiance to one God, they refuse to bow down to your new God, King Nebuchadnezzar. And listen, not only that, we've got more news about them. They don't bow to any of your gods. They don't worship any of the idols in Babylon that you serve, King Nebuchadnezzar. Look what they say. There are some Jews whom you've set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you've set up. Nebuchadnezzar is not happy. This is defiance of him. He, he sees this front to his power. This potentially ruins his plan to unite all people under this one God. And so what does he do? He summons the men. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are brought before him. Paul Schneider was a prisoner at Bushenwald concentration camp. It was the 20th of April, 1938, Hitler's 49th birthday. And in a tribute to Adolf Hitler, the prisoners of this concentration camp were ordered to remove their berets with one hand and venerate the swastika with their other hand. The order came and everyone took off their hats and everyone honored the flag. Apart from Paul Schneider, 
Immediately the guard saw and immediately he was away and lashed 25 times with an ox whip. He did not venerate the flag and immediately the punishment came. But this doesn't actually happen in the biblical account we have before us. No, what happened is that King Nebuchadnezzar is actually very generous. He, he must have liked Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He must have appreciated the work that they did in his kingdom. And he actually very generously gives them another chance. Do you remember what the herald said? The herald said, anyone who doesn't bow down will immediately be thrown into the fire. Well, these men didn't bow down, but they're not immediately thrown in the fire. King Nebuchadnezzar is actually kind to them. And he says to them, he gives them another chance. He brings them before him and he, and he says, listen, he says, I give you another chance here. You have a chance now to bow before the idol, but listen, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if you don't do it, I am going to have to throw you into the flames. But Nebuchadnezzar doesn't just stop there. Look at the last statement he makes, having told them this. He says, you better bow down. If you don't bow down, you're going to get thrown into the fire. And if you get thrown into the fire, then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Listen, boys, very brave out there on the plains of Jura. Very brave of you, okay? But here's how it's going to go. You're going to bow down or you'll be thrown into the fire. And then what God can save you from me? I've got the power here, lads. So you better just get in line. You better just do what you're told. You can imagine then, can't you? You can imagine Nebuchadnezzar standing there with all of his might and power. You can imagine him just standing there waiting for these men to car and apologize and, and bow to the idol. But they don't. Here, what we have coming next is what is called a mic drop. They drop the mic. They say something that just blows the whole thing up. Look at what these men say. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you've set up. Listen, Nebuchadnezzar, you're probably paying a fortune for that orchestra to play. Listen, there's no need to get them together again for us because we've no intention of bowing down to the god you've set up. And listen, Nebuchadnezzar, you stand there and you think you're so strong and, and all of that. Well, listen, you see our God, he can actually save us from the fire. If he wants to, that is, he might not. But if he wants to, he can do that. And listen, Nebuchadnezzar, you see, if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow down to your gods. Not surprisingly, Nebuchadnezzar flips his lid here. 
<laughs> he, he goes berserk. He completely and utterly loses it. And he doesn't just flip his lid. He flips the temperature up in the furnace. Okay, get more coals on it. Heat it up seven times hotter. In other words, turn the furnace up to maximum. And the people do. And these three men, they're bound. And they're taken to the fiery furnace. And they're thrown in. They're executed. Well, actually, they're not. They should be dead. They, they should burn up in an instant. But they don't. If you have a look at the passage, you'll see that Nebuchadnezzar, he goes to enjoy this sight of seeing his people who've defied him being burned. He goes to watch this. How gross is that? But as he looks through the, the part of the furnace where you can see in, what does he notice? But he notices that there's another man in the furnace with them. One who he says looks like the son of God's. You see, what Nebuchadnezzar sees in the fire here is what the boys saw before they were thrown in. What Nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar sees is that the God of Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego can do something that the idols can't. The idols were powerless. But Nebuchadnezzar sees that, that their God is a God who can rescue. He sees that their God is a God who is actually present with them in the fire. He sees that their God is real and powerful and active. He even sees that, that their God has protected them. They come out of the fire and not a singe, not a hair is singed on their head. Nebuchadnezzar sees that the God of these men can do things that the idols could not. And he proclaims this at the end of the passage. He says, no other God can save in this way. This is an incredible story. An incredible true story. An incredible of where God worked in a miraculous way. A way that we, we would just long to have seen. But here's the question. What is the message of this passage for me and you today? What's the message for us as we sit here thousands and thousands and thousands of years later? Well, my hope is that it became clear through the passage. The message of this passage for you and for me is that we're not to be idolaters. We're not to be people who worship idols instead of God. We're not to be people who, who give our allegiance to idols. We're not to give idols first place in our life. We're not to look to idols to give us things that only God can. Now you're sitting there and you're scratching your head and going, well, hey Marty, we don't have a problem with idols. We, we don't have little images that we're bowing down to at night time. We're not in North Korea. We're not bowing down to big statues, Marty. Okay, the message is about idols, but sure, sure we don't worship idols. That's the reason we think that, though, is because we think of idols in a wrong way. 
Many of us, whenever we think of idols, we think of things out there, like statues and images. But idols are not primarily out there. Idols are in here. Idols are in here. In our minds, in our hearts, in our lives, inwardly. We put so many things in the place of God. Inwardly, we, we hope to find things that God can give us in other ways. John Calvin, who was a, a French minister and a Bible expert, he died in 1564. Listen to what he said about idols. He said, the human heart is a factory of idols. Every one of us is, from his mother's womb, expert in inventing idols. Just like Nebuchadnezzar was an expert in setting up this big golden idol, Calvin is saying to you and to me that we are experts in creating idols in our hearts and in our minds. Another pastor, another minister called Tim Keller, he's a retired minister in, in a, from a church in New York City. He has a wonderful book called Counterfeit Gods. And if this challenges you this morning, I'd encourage you to read it. But in that book, he helpfully defines what an idol is today for us. And he says this, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. Be honest this morning. If this is a definition of what an idol is, what are the idols in your heart this morning? What are the things you're looking to for meaning and satisfaction and comfort and hope that aren't God? What are the things that are more important to you than God? What are the gifts that God has given you that instead of thanking Him for them, you've set them above Him in your life and you let them control and dominate you? What are the idols in your heart this morning? I've got them. If you're honest, my guess is that you have got them too. And what I want to show you this morning is, is that why, I want to show you why idols are a problem. You see, the only way we're going to get rid of our idols, the only way we're going to, to knock them down is if we see why idols are a problem. And they're a problem for three reasons. The first one is that, that we're not to make idols. God tells us not to do it, so it's sinful. It's a sinful thing to do to put idols in place of God. That's the first problem it is. The second problem is that idols can't deliver what they promise. I'll show you that in a wee minute. And the third problem is that worshipping idols becomes so demanding it destroys us. Let me try and explain how this works. I want you to imagine that this smiley, handsome looking young man is called Steve. Hi, Steve. Well, if you were to look into Steve's heart, what you would see in Steve's heart is that Steve's idol is the approval of others. Steve must feel the approval of everyone he meets. 
If he doesn't feel the approval of other people, he will feel that his life is not right. His heart wants it more than anything in the world. He needs everybody to like him. He wants everybody to think he's a great guy. If someone was not to like Steve, Steve would absolutely fall apart. That's his idol. And so every single day, Steve lives with this as the God of his life. And it makes life a nightmare for him. It really does. He finds himself always saying what other people want to hear. He finds himself doing things that he doesn't want to do, but he does them because he feels he needs to please someone else. He never feels he to disagree with someone or argue with someone because if he does, they might not like him. He's never able to give his opinion on something. His biggest nightmare is rejection. Poor Steve is, is controlled and trapped by this idol of approval. And it's a 24-7 day a week job trying to keep this idol happy. And you know what makes things even worse for Steve? He's never sure that he's got people's approval even after all he does. He doesn't really know what people think of him. Do, do you see what I'm getting at by having an idol? Let me introduce you to someone else. Let's pretend that, that this girl is called Alice. Alice, her idol is actually busyness. Alice is someone who always has to be busy. So what Alice does is she overloads her diary every week. Every moment she's awake, she is doing something, whether that's work, whether that's seeing friends, whether that's volunteering. Every minute of every day, completely and utterly full. She's out seven nights a week. She doesn't rest. She's busy, busy, busy. Busyness is her idol. You see, lockdown for Alice, it was a nightmare. An absolute nightmare. She felt worthless during that time because she couldn't be as busy as she wanted to be. But you see with Alice, you see if you drill down a wee bit, it's not actually the busyness that's her idol. It's importance. She wants to feel important. And in her mind, important people are always really busy. And so if she just busies herself with life, she'll feel important. She actually likes it whenever somebody says to her, hey, listen, do you want to go out on Tuesday night? And she says, I can't, I'm sorry, I'm so busy. It thrills her to say that. But it's wrecking her. She's tired all the time. She's utterly stressed. She can't rest. She can't stop thinking. And you know what the worst thing of all is? She doesn't feel important even after all the busyness. I've called him Steve, and I've called him Alice, but I relate to both of these. These are, are two idols that me as your minister has to fight on an ongoing basis. These are two idols that constantly threaten to take first place in my life. I wonder what your idols are this this sermon is not one you can listen to and just leave and go home and say, that was a lovely sermon this morning. No, th this is a sermon where you need to go home and think about your life. 
What idols are you trying to serve? What idols have you let become number one in your life? What idols are destroying you? And whenever you see those idols, do you know what you need to do? There are two things you need to do. The first thing is you need to turn from them. You need to repent. Turn from those idols. Turn from them. How do you do that? Think about destroying you. Think about how they can't actually give you what you want from them. Think about how they just don't work in real life. That's the first way that you repent from it is to think of that and also think how they're destroying you. Think how they're damaging your life. But repenting is not enough. We need to replace them with something better. We need to replace them with Jesus Christ. Poor old Steve never felt the approval of anybody after all of his effort. But whenever he turns to Jesus Christ, he sees that he has the approval of God. Whenever he turns to Jesus Christ, and he turns to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he trusts in Jesus Christ, suddenly he remembers that he is a child of God. And the approval he has always wanted, he gets. Or or what about Alice? Always wanting to feel important. When Alice turns to Jesus Christ, she sees how important she is. She's so important that God let his son die for her. She's important in the Father's eyes and Jesus shows her that. Jesus can do what idols cannot. Jesus can give you the things that idols cannot. Jesus is better than any idol. And this morning, he says this to you. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest.